BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the star and namesake, Victor Davis Hanson, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He uh, finds his happy home on the internet at the Blade of Perseus, and you should check that out. The web address is victorhanson.com. I'll talk to you more about that later in the show. Have to give a tip of the hat, by the way. I do this every few episodes, Victor. Our, our home, our official home, the podcast official home on the internet is John Solomon's justthenews.com. You should check that out every once in a while, actually every day. Victor, as usual, many things to talk about. And I think we should first go after, oops, I mean, talk about Chuck Schumer the majority leader of the Senate, who's attacking the Supreme Court, the 9 nothing decision Supreme Court. It's MAGA land, even though Sotomayor and others are members of MAGA. I didn't know that. But once again, the leading Democrat in the Senate is bringing his vitriol to the high court. And we will get your thoughts, Victor, on that and plenty other topics right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, our old friend Chuck Schumer from New York, I'm ashamed to say. Here's a headline um, from foxnews.com. Schumer rips MAGA, MAGA, Supreme Court after 9 nothing vote on EPA water rules. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer slammed the Supreme Court's ruling Thursday that limited the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate bodies of water, calling it a MAGA court, even though the decision was 9 nothing, And this was, uh, now it says on Thursday, but that's probably a week uh, prior to you, this broadcast being, uh, podcast being broadcast. Uh, the high court issued an opinion that narrowed the EPA's broad definition 
of waters of the United States. The court said the federal government government must define WOTUS, waters of the United States, as a water source with a continuous surface connection to major bodies of water. Victor, there are two stories here. One is Chuck Schumer attacking court. By the way, you've spent a lot of your life, and we've talked about this in the past, worried about or, or conflicted by or angry at government, state, and and uh, federal, and how it plays uh, or politics with and crucifies farmers over water. You may have some thoughts about the actual decision made, but Victor, your thoughts about Schumer or your th- and your thoughts about maybe water? Well, you know, I, I wrote in The Dying Citizen uh, a chapter called The Unelected, and I mentioned this expansion of the, the statute concerning waterways by the Environmental Protection Agency. And remember what we're talking about. The Congress passes a law that says there has to be water quality on navigable bodies of water uh, as they butt a butt or go through your property. And that means if you're putting calcium nitrate on an orchard and it rains and that nitrate goes into a river and the river is found to have too high a nitrogen content, then you're culpable. Okay. That was the intent and the extent of the legislation. So anytime you create, though, an unaccountable government agency, by that I mean they have the powers to legislate, i.e. they can expand or contract through their interpretation of that legislative decision. They have judicial powers. They can come out and uh, adjudicate whether you owe money or not. And they have executive. They can they can determine to enforce a law or not enforce it. So you you have no checks and balances on them. And what this arose out of, a lot of farmers have low spots. So on heavy rains and there would be a little temporary pond, those little chipper EPA, state and federal would come out to your place if they didn't like you or they wanted to exercise their authority. And they say, ah, oh, that's a navigable, that's a waterway. And you say, no, it's not. It dries up. It's just a low spot. No, we're going to test it. Well, of course, they're going to have it's a runoff, but it's going to dry up. It doesn't it's not a major water. No, it doesn't matter because we do we interpret the statute. This is what the legislator really should have done. And now I'm an executive, so I'm enforcing my reinterpreted status. And now I'm a judge because I, I deem you guilty. So you own a fine. And you say, but I this isn't fair. And they say, sue us. We're lifelong bureaucrats, but we have the power of the federal government. We have all the attorneys. You want to go out and spend $200,000? You say, no, I don't care. Okay, then, Mr. Farmer, here's what you're going to do. Now, listen carefully. And that's how it was working. And finally, uh, Chuck Schumer, who, like Michael Bloomberg, who said that agriculture was a joke. All you have to do is drop a seed in, and then bang, it sprouts up. He doesn't know the first thing about a navigable waterway or a waterway or a farmer's drainage pond. It didn't matter, though. And it was 9-0. He just bashing the court. I don't know what happened to that guy. He was a doctrinaire liberal. And then when the woke people took over his party and he was scared of AOC, might run against, I don't know what it was, but he went completely nuts. When Donald Trump was inaugurated, remember he said they have seven ways by Sunday or something, the CIA to go after you. And it was almost like he was rah, 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 CIA, go after Donald Trump. What an idiot. Does he have any idea what the CIA can do to you? 
this was, you know, a, a sort of a prophecy that came true, given what the FBI and the CIA did right. do. And then he most, I think the low spot in his entire career in which he'll never live down, he went out in front of a anti-life pro-abortion mob and got right up to the Supreme Court doors and yelled through the doors, Gorchich, Kavanaugh, as if they could hear him, you will reap the whirlwind. You will reap the world, i.e., you sowed the biblical wind, and now you're going to reap the whirlwind. And then the punchline, you won't know what hit you. Well, I mean, if you were in a disinterested, fair society and you have a major political figure threatening the physical safety of Supreme Court justices over a pending case, i.e., questions about abortion, then you would say that could be an actionable offense, that that was, you know, interfering in the judicial process or threatening a judge or tampering. Uh, but of course, he's Chuck Schumer, so he got away with it. And then, of course, about 11 months later, people started, according to the left's new tactic, showing up at the homes of Clarence Thomas or Oh, Alito, John, even John Roberts, etc. And they were screaming and yelling. And then lo and behold, we had a transgendered would-be assassin show up. And luckily, he lost heart and he texted his sister who talked him out of shooting. I guess it was Gorsuch or Kavanaugh, one of the two. And then, of course, that continued with Gorsuch. Uh, Kavanaugh would go into a restaurant and they would mob him. So this was all what he called for. I mean, this is exactly what he said when he said, you know, you don't know what hit you. You're going to reap the whirlwind. And so people, I think, just followed out his prompt. And uh, there had been a, can you imagine a Rand Paul getting a bunch of pro-life demonstrators and going out to the Supreme Court and saying, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, you do not know what will hit you. And then when a bunch of crazy, crazed protesters showed up at her house and screamed and yelled, and there was some right-wing guy that showed up with an intent to kill her, what would the left say about all that? They would have gone out and tried to expel Rand Paul from the Senate. It's just part of this great asymmetry that we just take for granted, that the left gets away with it. But he's a despicable person. He really is. And he's never paid any kind of price for what he said. And he's a big advocate of uh, using, weaponizing the federal government. One thing we've learned about Jim Jordan's weaponizing, I don't think we needed to learn it, but it was confirmed, is the left has no real ideology. Yes, I know they have a equality of result redistributionist idea, but essentially it's about power. So 1976, 77, Frank Church wants to go after the CIA and the FBI for post-Watergate investigations of spying on America. Yes, that's great. He's a hero. Today? How dare you do that? FBI is an iconic American institution, i.e., what's the subtext? 
subtexts. We couldn't weaponize it in 75 and 6, 77. We thought it might be against us, but now we control it, so it's good. So we don't care about civil liberties. And just follow that line of thinking and everything makes sense. IRS, IRS is good. You know, it gives a pass to Hunter. Lois Lerner went after the right people. It's a good thing. They gave the whistleblower, you know, whistleblowers? Was Eric Caramel, Saramella, or whatever his name is, Michael Vimna? Oh, wonderful people. Now these guys, oh, they're white wing, right wing, white conspiracists, anti-Biden people. So whatever particular civil liberties issue there is, there's no civil liberties issue. It's just to the degree of which it has utility for the left, and they will make the necessary adjustments. So all of a sudden they found out that once they captured the Pentagon, all these guys with four stars and a chest full of metals that go right back to Raytheon or, you know, general dynamics. This is wonderful because these guys, you know, they, they created more diversity. And CIA, no problem. If the CIA, John Brennan lies under oath, unleashes, they were going after Trump. That was okay. FBI, oh, wow. This is wonderful what they did, that Steele dossier was authentic. So they're all for weaponizing all of these traditional conservative agencies. And the final thing to say about it is these agencies are in big trouble, and, and, and many of them are very valuable. But when you lose your constituency, which is traditional America that supports you, and you insult them, as we saw with the Pentagon hearings, when they basically said America as it is represented in the armed forces, was racist and white raging, and you don't get people to join. And now when you look at the polls of FBI approval, I mean, they're they're up there with used car salesmen, no offense to used car salesmen, because they've lost the support of the American people. And that's, and that's reflected in just as recruitment doesn't go up for the army, there's people who don't want, they're afraid of the FBI. They, they're terrified of the FBI. They feel the FBI is a personal Stasi retrieval service for the Biden family. Lose a gun, call the FBI up. Hunter, Ashley Biden, lose a diary, get the FBI to go get James O'Keefe out and see what he knows. Roust him out in the middle of the night in his underwear and humiliate him. Lost a laptop, go after that laptop person, suppress it, claim it's, that's what they do. Projection. I think they're scared stiff. I really do. I mean, you go back and look at those text exchanges from Strzok and Page. They're so arrogant. They wouldn't write like that today. They understand that people do not like them. And the next, if Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump is reelected, if Trump is, I shouldn't say Trump's reelected, if he's elected, or Ron DeSantis, I think either one of them will go after those agencies. And I mean, really go after them, like the FBI. And the FBI should be taken, that seventh floor of that Hoover building should be transferred lock, stock, and barrel to Utah or Wyoming. Yeah. Get it out of Washington. And then they should go and find all the whistleblowers and say, Lou, you, 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 you're going to be in this, you're going to be running the agency right now. And just weed it out of anybody who was political. And then uh, they should do the same thing with the Pentagon. They should do the same thing with the CIA. They should do the same thing with the DOJ. They should do the same thing with the IRS. I think they will. 
Victor, it's uh, kind of, yeah, I think the worm is turning. We talked about this a little bit on our previous podcast, but uh, that um, maybe hopefully majority of Americans have are moved on from seeing the left or or leftists or people like Chuck Schumer say as uh, bleeding heart liberal, right? Uh, which is a phrase that kind of implies, well, you, you know, you're, you want good outcomes. That's what you're all about. You're a liberal. You want good outcomes. We Maybe we could still have a cup of coffee with you. But it's moved on, and I think it's be, mostly because of these companies, uh, Bud Light, et cetera. Oh, I, you hate me. <laughs> like that's that's what this is really about. It's not like you have a different view of of governing. It's that part of your view of governing is you hate me. And I'm. it's finally sinking in with many Americans that these SOBs hate them. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I I used to play a parlor game because I'm at the Hoover Institution, and we have what we call retreats where Hoover fellows speak about the mission statement of the institution, uh, and that is limited government, free markets, personal freedom as it pertains to war, revolution, and peace. And over the last eight years because we're based in California and in the Bay Area, we have seen, in general, 500,000 Californians in the last 18 months have left the state. And among our donor base, a lot have left. And I'm interested in why they're leaving other than the obvious, right? That They don't want to pay the federal rate of 39%, or in addition to that, California is up to 13.2. And but it's not just that, Jack. I, I, I ask them all the time, why are you leaving? And they'll say that. They hate me. And I said, what do you mean by that? Well, Victor, I, I, when I buy a car, I pay basically 10 to 11 percent with state and local taxes. And I may be we have Prop 13 that limits it to 1%, but they have ways of getting around that. They go up to 1.5%. But more importantly, my house anywhere else would be valued at 800000 And here in California, in the Bay Area, it's $300 million, and I'm paying an exorbitant tax. And when I fill up at my – I pay the highest gas taxes in the United States. And then when I have my federal taxes at 37 38 and my 13% on a lot of my income, and I can't write the state and local taxes off anymore, I'm paying a huge amount of money. So and then I would say this, well, then you're angry because you're paying a huge amount of money, but you get little in turn. Well, yes, we get very little in turn, Victor. We, If you go down the 101 down by Gilroy or Santa Barbara, you take your life in your hand. If you go down I-5, it's the trucks are in the left lane now. We have all this space for three lanes. We don't do it. If you go down the 99, it's a death trap. You go into LAX, it's out of Dante's Inferno. If you go look at high-speed rail, it's a debacle. If you go on the streets of San Francisco, it looks like a medieval city. If you go down El Camino Real in one of the richest places where there's $9 trillion of market capitalization, it's lined, lined with buses and Winnebago's of people living there who work there with afford. The whole society is falling apart. If you look at the public schools, they're nightmares. So I said, okay, you pay too much and you get very little in exchange. Yes, yes. So that's why you're leaving. No, no. It's a little bit more than that, Victor. 
I said, okay, what? They hate me. They hate me. One percent of California pays 50 percent of the income taxes. And what do they do in the legislature and the popular culture? They make fun of the people who do well and pay half of their income tax, which is over half of the state income that's revenue. And we're not all Jay-Z and Beyonce or LeBron or the Malibu party set that they give a pass to. They hate wealthy people. They want to have a mansion tax. They want a wealth tax. It's never enough. We're facing 35, 32, 35, 40 billion dollars likely in state deficits that cannot be rolled over. And what are they thinking after having a 13.3 income tax top rate? Florida has none, and it has a $2 billion surplus. They're thinking, how do we raise that to 14%? Because we hate those people, and they owe us. If you think that's an exaggeration, then you think about what they're saying. I thought, you know, we talked a little bit about Sammy, the $800 billion reparations uh, commission. What I thought was the most striking about it was that when somebody asked them, how are they going to pay for it? They said, we've already paid for it. I guess they, I don't know what that means, but they wanted a free house, two or $3 million a person. They didn't care how a bankrupt state could pay for it. But what was interesting, Jack, is they said, well, we're willing to take it on the installment plan. <laughs> the installment plan, you're going to pay me. And if that reparations passed in California, you would see a million people leave in one year. One year, yeah. you'd see people leave. They'd say, I'm not going to work all year long and pay this excessive rate and see this state with crime and filth in the cities and just terrible infrastructure and then turn over $800 billion to 5% of the population who hates me. And that's what they would think because anybody would who who wants 800 billion and then says to the state i don't care where you get it and you owe it to me it's uh i'd see people just as you say leaving and even leaving abandoning their houses if you stayed the burden it's probably less to just abandon your house than to pay that i think it's really important that would come down the pike yeah, you know it's really important um to go through history and see why areas become depopulated. Everybody thinks it's plague or it's um, war. It's not. It's usually taxation and social policy. Plutarch, the famous biographer, he wrote and was active roughly around 100 AD. And in some of his lives, it's very un it's very eerie because he will describe the countryside of Greece under Roman imperial administration and he will say it's desolate and small towns have weeds growing in the in their agora and what he's trying to tell you is that under roman imperial rule the city-state the small farmer the small independent community the consensual government were all gone and there were concessions to either large estates latifundia they called it uh or vast tracts that went on farm why because of roman uh taxation that destroyed these small independent communities and the only people who could afford it were 
corporate people who had inside contacts with the Roman legates and professional tax collectors and the Roman administrators. But vast areas that had been quite populated were desolate. You go to a, 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 the Deem of Marathon, everybody knows about the battle. Oh, I shouldn't say everybody, but we should know about the Battle of Marathon. In classical times, around 500 to 400 BC, that was a thriving community with four separate city-states. The largest farm we have any evidence for in classical Greece is about 130 acres. And Go into Roman times about the time Plutarch wrote. One man, Herodes Atticus, he owned the entire area, probably 30 or 40,000 acres. And so how did he get all that land? Because people were bankrupt. They couldn't pay the taxes anymore. They were hated by the government. They disappeared. They moved into the cities. They just dissolved. So it's not unimaginable to think that you can... As somebody who's been downtown L.A. this spring and downtown San Francisco, and you see 30, 40 percent of these downtown beautiful buildings unoccupied, and you try to say, is it, was it the riots? Was it the fear of COVID? Was it the Zoom? Was it the crime? Was it the taxes? It's all of them. And they've completely depopulated large areas of our downtown. I'm surprised... You know, we need St. Jerome to write an account about how there's grass growing in the form of Rome. That's what it, or Procopius, when Belisarus gets back to Rome to retake it in the 6th century, what does he see? This million-person city is empty, and it's, you know, falling apart. And that's what's happening in our cities. A lot of, And they're all in places where there's very, very, very high taxation. And the reason that people are leaving, besides crime and terrible schools, is they are hated by these municipal and state governments and they tax these people to death and they never say, I want to thank the 1% who paid half the taxes. That's always, how did you get that money to pay our taxes? You must be a crook. And that that doesn't go well. And you know what the final insult to injury is? The legislature is always coming up and its bureaucracies with ways to tax Californians who leave, who leave. They want to have a severance tax so that they can go after you when you're in Florida or Nevada or Texas or somewhere else. Well, Victor, some people think that maybe California is salvageable. And we're going to we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. There's a piece by Walter Russell Mead in Tablet magazine but we before we get to that we have a uh, a sponsor for today's podcast and that's liver health formula and i need to talk to our listeners victor you must start taking care of your liver now do that more than ever why because the latest data from the american heart association indicates that adults with fatty liver were three and a half times more likely to have heart failure than those without the American Liver Foundation says that 100 million Americans have fatty liver, which means many people are at risk. We throw everything at our livers, cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, statins, cigarettes. That's why so many of us have a sluggish fatty liver that makes us gain weight and lose energy. For decades now, your liver helped you with over 500 key functions all day, every day. When you're awake, when you're asleep, your liver is just working the hell out of itself. So it's time you help 
your liver. There's a solution. It's called Liver Health Formula. It's an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. It's manufactured right here in the USA, and it's approved by American doctors. You can try Liver Health Formula and receive a free bottle of omega-3 to keep your heart healthy. So try Liver Health Formula by going to Get liverhelp.com slash victor and claim your free bonus gift that's get liverhelp.com slash victor we thank liver health formula for sponsoring the victor davis hansen show so victor um you had mentioned to me uh before the podcast uh, uh that there was a very interesting piece you had read by Walter Russell Mead. So I went scrambling through the uh, Wall Street Journal from the last week. I, I couldn't find it, but then I, I Googled, and there it is on Tablet Magazine, which, by the way, Tablet Mag is an online uh, journal. I usually give it a link in every uh, week, every edition of the Civil Thoughts that I, I write, my free weekly email newsletter. It's a terrific publication. Anyway, he has, we're speaking about California. We have been, we will, and we will continue with another story after this. But he's got a piece called Build Back Red California. And uh, I'll just read one uh, uh, one uh, little paragraph here. Uh, oh, my gosh, this is such a, such a long piece. He says here, the door is open for Cali California Republicans if they dare to walk through it. For anxious millennials, aspirational Zoomers, and above all, for millions of immigrants, home ownership remains the key to the American dream. Tight land use and zoning regulations, plus ever-increasing regulatory requirements for new home construction, have turned California, once a haven for first-generation homeowners, into the most expensive housing market in the country. As of April 2023, the state's Median home price stood at $765,900. Mamma mia. If housing costs are factored in, California has the highest poverty rate in the nation. Victor, this is a big piece, lots of data, lots of analysis. I think it's a little far-fetched what I glanced and gleaned, but uh, hey, he's no dummy. Uh, Walter Russell Mead writes a lot for the, uh, he's a professor, right? I think. Any, any yes, he is. Here's a column in the Wall Street Journal every week. Uh, so, yes. Victor, you, you know, tell us wh why this piece interests you. Well, I should say that he, he was a member for many years at uh, my military history program at the Hoover Institution. I've met him. I've had dinner. I've been on a cruise with him. Very <clears throat> learned person. Wrote a great book on American post-war foreign policy. So he's a very skilled analyst of uh, domestic and foreign affairs. And what he's trying to argue is that, well, the subtext is that this bi-coastal elite created this regulatory environment for their own selfish interest, i.e., if you've got a beautiful little cottage in, on a quarter acre, a nice house in Carmel, you don't want anybody around you, except if they're going to clean up or cook for you. You don't want, uh, in San Francisco, you don't want a new development of a bunch of poor people. Or if you live in Woodside, you don't want anybody from Redwood City near you. But the point is, these zoning laws, not in my backyard type of things, have made it almost impossible to 
buy a home, which is one of the conservative stimuli in a society. You put a guy who, you know, writes graffiti over everything, and suddenly if somebody writes graffiti over something he owns, or a guy who throws a rock through a window, and suddenly he has to fix that window, he has a very different idea. So home ownership traditionally, it runs about 62 to 63%. In California, it's much lower because, you know, we have 27% of the population wasn't born in the United States. And we have, and he's he's got a, Walter Russell Mead has a good insight to the left-wing mind about how these people who lecture us with all of these liberal pieties and platitudes never are subject to the consequences of their own ideology. So it's a depressing picture at first that we live in this medieval state in which we have these wealthy coastal elites, none more so where there's $9 trillion of market capitalization capitalization between Stanford or between San Jose and San Francisco, and you add about 10 to 12 million illegal aliens who moved into the state without English skills, capital, legality over the last 50 years, and you've got the ingredients, you know, and then you add the Reagan, Dick Majan, Pete Wilson, Schwarzenegger voter left the state, perhaps five to eight million. And so you've got a bifurcated society that's left of very wealthy people along the strip living in $2 million on average homes from La Jolla to Berkeley. And then everybody else who's not middle class, they're lower, lower middle class, highest poverty rate, 22% of the population in the United States, one third of all welfare recipients, half the homeless, uh, the Medicaid bu budget just soaring out of control, it's only six or 7% left to fix infrastructure. So that was what he starts with. And then he says, but wait a minute, this has happened before, during the Great Depression, when the drought and the Depression wiped out millions of farmers from northern Texas, Oklahoma in particular, and Arkansas. They headed westward, the, the Joads of, you know, John Steinbeck fame. And... A lot of novels in the night from 1932 to 1940 talked about the Oki diaspora, so to speak. Anyway, what he's saying is that group that came to California was caricatured because they brought in the Church of God, they brought in the Assembly of God, they brought in Fundamentalist Church of Christ, they had tent revivals, they had Southern accents, they had weird habits they were fundamentalist christians that were they were not like we Episcop we being the native california we episcopalians presbyterians methodists etc so and they were very poor and more importantly they were imbued with the new deal mentality and remember that we don't associate Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas with being blue states. But during the Depression, until really the Nixon years, they were. I mean, think about it. William Fulbright, you know, he's a good example of that area. Or a lot of the Texas senators were very, very, uh, Yarborough was very left wing. 
And that was all a legacy of very poor white people that looked toward the Roosevelt administration for help. And they came in droves to California. So he said, well, all of a sudden they started electing in the late 30s and 40s and early 50s left-wing governments. And the state didn't react well. It was not as bad as it is now. 15 or 17 million people, not 42 million. But his point is that as these people began to intermarry, assimilate, enter the upward mobility trajectory, they had became stakeholders and they became more conservative and they became kind of the new majority of the state, their children, their offspring, their mentality, and they became conservative. And they elected people like a conservative Democrat, Yorty in Los Angeles. Or in San Francisco, you had Christopher, who was actually a Republican. And they brought in the Reagan Revolution of 62. And they brought in Pete Wilson. And now they're, they're either fully assimilated, their grandkids are left-wing, or they left. But, but... Walter Russell Mead says 45% of the state are first and second generation people from south of the border, the majority from Mexico, some third generation. And, and like the Oklahoma diaspora, they are starting to be the head of the DMV, the police chief, the local hardware store owner, the tire shop entrepreneur. There's, they have homes. They're not having 12 kids. They're having two kids. Their kids are going to college and they have to live in California and they have to pay $5 a gallon for gas. They have to pay this income tax rate. They have to pay this overvalued assessments on their property taxes. They have to deal with crime. They've got to go to San Francisco sometimes and or LA and see what's happened. They They don't like smash and grab, et cetera, et cetera. So what he is saying is that they very so slowly are starting to do what the proverbial quote unquote Okie population, they're becoming conservative. But unlike the quote unquote Okie population, they're bigger. They're much bigger. They have a much greater percentage of the population. They're not a million or two. They're 10, 15 million in theory. As I said, they're the largest ethnic group in California. And I don't even know if they're still an ethnic group because they're so assimilated, at least by the, the third generation. But his point is that they are becoming conservative because they are the establishment now. They are the authorities now. And they, if they don't become conservative, then the, they understand that everything they work for is gone. So, yes, the legislature may want to do their transgendered stuff and they want to do their reparation stuff and they want to shut down natural gas plants and they do not believe in harvesting timber and letting the forest burn. OK, but they don't have the constituency they used to have and they were ready for an earthquake as these emerging upper middle class, middle class Latino voters, Hispanic voters, Mexican-American, they're going to start voting in their self-interest like the Oklahoma people did. Right. And we're going to have a new era of red if, if, and then of course he had to put this in, if the Republicans drop the golf course stuff 
and they're not Mitt Romney types, and they're populist, and they welcome these people to run the party for them. And so you don't have just a bunch of guys golfing in Orange County in a little enclave, but you turn over your party to Rodrigo Hernandez, who runs 1,000 people working for his landscaping corporation or something like that. Yeah, And so we'll see. We'll see. I think there's one thing he misses in his analyses, a very important thing, and that was the Oklahoma diaspora was essentially from 1930 to 1940. And we had people that I grew up with on this farm that were from Oklahoma. And uh, I know people in my family that, that you know, that, that had friends and family members and in-laws. I did. They're from Oklahoma. So it's a very immediate, um, immediate right. uh, knowledge of it. But the difference was that stopped by about 1940. There wasn't a, a fresh infusion all during the 50s and 60s of poor people. And so there was not a lot of uh, there weren't people in Oklahoma that who had come with nothing and then they were electricians and then they were electric contractors and then they were electrician businesses. And suddenly they had more people coming that were poor and they were felt that they had obligations to them and ethnic bound, uh, ties that bound them. They were just segregated. They were cut off. They were just that was it. It was a one time deal didn't continue in the six because Oklahoma recovered right and California began to get expensive and so and that's what's different if you shut the border and right. you build the wall and you enforce the immigrate yes he's absolutely right you keep the border open and you send a million illegal aliens into California every year and you're not going to have a conservative Latino majority because for each Latino person 55 years old who's fluent in english he's been a citizen for two generations he's you're going to have a new person come in and says where's my where's my ebt card where's my scholarship for my kid where's all this i need this i have nothing and so that's going to be hard to break but yes he's right if you will cut the border supply off and you have a finite pool like you did with the oklahomans they will become conservative and maybe you have a conservative uh, the same thing's true with the Asians. They are coming, but uh, that stream is starting to taper off a little bit. And a lot of the Asians were conservative. Uh, when I grew up, they were largely Taiwanese and Japanese. And then we brought in literally hundreds, if not millions of people from Southeast Asia who were very Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Hmong, very poor, very, very poor. And they kept coming and they they had a very different political ideology than the the establishment Asian population. They were very left wing. And so that that's the key is if the immigration is continuous or whether it, it's periodic. If it's periodic, then people will grow conservative in these ethnic groups. But if they're not, they won't. His argument is it's not a minority anymore. It's a majority of minority. It's just about ready to be 51% of the state. And so whatever, I think his argument is, whatever the Latino consensus is, is going to be the state, whether you like it or not. That 51% will have the state's numbers in a democracy. 
and whether they'll be influenced by Silicon Valley money or coastal culture, and they're going to go down the reparations, transgender, radical, abortion on demand, or they're going to be socially and culturally conservative depends on how many people come across the border every year, I think. Yeah. Well, which makes the 2024 elections all the more important. Well, there are probably 100 important reasons. Hey, Victor, um, we're going to move away from California, and it's Calif- it's graduation time. Actually, many schools have already had their graduations, but you have some thoughts on graduations, and we are going to hear them right after these important messages. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We're back with the Victor Davis Hansen Show, and Victor has a website, and it's called The Blade of Perseus. Its web address is victorhansen.com. You should go there regularly. Why? There are links to everything that Victor does. His appearances on radio shows and other podcasts, links to his books, to the articles he writes for American Greatness, his syndicated column. You'll also find links to the ultra articles that he writes exclusively for the blade of perseus to read them you have to subscribe why you're not subscribing already folks it just beats the heck out of me but if you're a fan of victor and his wisdom in the written word you should know that cumulatively i would over a year i think about two books two full books worth of wisdom are published as ultra articles so Two or three times a week, you'll find that that there on on the website. So do subscribe. It's five dollars to get in the door. Fifty dollars uh, for the full year. VictorHanson.com. So one of those pieces, Victor, one of these uh, ongoing series uh, that you're uh, writing for uh, the website is called uh, uh, "Our Ossified Americans," and in part one, that's the only part up. You, you're writing about institutions that have outlived their age, and you start off with tribal graduations. Victor, what is a tribal ag- a graduation? I, I don't know what it is. I watched uh, one of them on local television, but apparently this is a 60s relic that oppressed people uh, and minorities will identify by tribal affiliations, i.e. superficial appearance or language. And the result would be that at universities, community colleges, high school, there's going to be, and there is, they say there's going to be a general graduation, but the, that's fragmented now. So sometimes you only have these. There's going to be the transgender graduation, the, the Latino, Chicano graduation, the black graduation, the Asian graduation, etc. The mixed race graduation, I suppose. And this is going to amplify the reality on campus where you have the, they don't call them segregated houses, but they call them theme houses. So I 
I have an apartment on the Stanford campus and I walk to work across these theme houses and they're basically restricted by race. That means if you're Joe White guy and you'd like to go into a black theme house and you can't, you can't. But if you have a European theme house, of course, nobody, you, you would be bounced off the campus. Now, all of that made sense maybe when these groups were impoverished and they did not have parity either numerically or economically with the majority population, i.e. 90% a white 200-year tradition, 10% black, 2 or 3% Asian and Hispanic in the 40s and 50s. However, today, when the white population is 67% and you have about 17 ethnic groups, whether Punjabis or Arab Americans or Korean Americans or Thai, who have a higher per capita income than whites, it's getting increasingly hard to suggest that anybody's oppressed. Jay-Z and Beyonce just bought the most expensive real estate property house this year, $210 million in L.A., so my point is, when you have these graduations, are you really talking, say, at Cal State Fresno, when when 47% of the population is Latino and 75% of the degrees are going to Latino, and you have a Latino graduation that only Latinos go to, well, that's the majority of the students, right? So... Yeah. Are you going to extend the logic to the minority of the students? Because there's only about 15 to 20 percent white, so-called white students at Cal State Fresno, I think, 25. So do they get to have a European? Is that what they want to call? What would happen? Does anybody do you want to go down the Rwanda, Iraq, Yugoslavia? Because that's where it ends. As I said before, it's like nuclear proliferation. If your neighbor goes nuclear, then you go nuclear. Well, if everybody's identifying first and foremost by their tribe to the extent that they have separate graduations, theme houses, safe space, and you're outnumbered, and they say that anybody's outnumbered has a right to have an ethnic, then you know what's coming down the turnpike. It'll be some type of somebody will some very soon will say, let's have a European-American graduation. And what are they going to say? That's white supremacy when you're a minority of the population in California. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, how do you qualify? So in an interracial society, about 40% of Latinos marry outside their group. And I can tell you from somebody who caught 21 years at Cal State Fresno, I had just every other student was part Latino. Everybody I knew was married to Latino. I have a brother who was married to a Latino. I have another brother who has Latino children. Everybody knows that extended families where Latinos are in them. It's just, it's a commonplace. So how do you adjudicate? It's kind of like the tribal problem with Indian gaming where some guy pulls, appears out of nowhere. There's 50, 50 members of a tribe that's worth a billion dollars in gambling value. And he all of a sudden he says, I'm a member of that tribe. And they said, no, you're not. Your name's Peter Smith. He said, yes, but I'm 116th and I can prove it. And then they said, well, okay. And then they sue. And they, we've had these fights everywhere in California among tribal. Who gets it? So who goes to the Latino graduation? Does the guy who has a grandparent that's Argentine? Let's say you come from Argentina, Argentina and come to California, and your name is Roberto Sandoval. And let's say you speak 
fluent Spanish from Argentina, and you're now a U.S. resident or a U.S. citizen, but you have blue eyes and blonde hair because your mother's family was from Italy and Germany, and you are only a half or an eight, a fourth of so-called native Argentine, which is Spanish. So you come to Cal State Fresno, you have you don't look like you're Hispanic, but you're perfectly fluent in Spanish. And you want to go to, and your name, let me excuse myself. I shouldn't say you're going to take your patronymic, but your matronymic. Let's say your name is Klaus Schwab. Okay, just to take a familiar name, because your mother from Argentina was German, but yet you speak, you're, you're one-fourth Hispanic, and you speak fluent, and you come in there and you say, I'm, I'm a Latino, I'm going to be the Latino graduation. You say, well, wait a minute, your name's Klaus Schwab. I'm one-half, one-quarter, and I speak fluent. Well, that guy over there, he's been a third-generation Mr. Robert Sandoval, but he's only one-half, but his name's Robert Sandoval, and he looks darker than you, but he doesn't speak Spanish. I do. That happens. So what is the criteria to go to the Latino graduation? Is it facility in Spanish? If it is, half the people wouldn't be able to go there. I know they have it in Spanish, but now they have it in English and Spanish, and you look at the audiences, and when they speak in Spanish, half of the people can't understand a word. And then is it your Hispanic name? Does that make you more Hispanic? That you, if you're one quarter Hispanic, but it's all on your father's side, and you keep a Spanish sounding name, and you trill your R's and you add accents, does that mean you're you're authentic? Is it your superficial appearance? I go into my local community, Jack. Ninety percent of the people are Latino, and I swear to God, if I went in there and I took the first five Latino people who cut my hair, I see at the mailbox, and I said to a stranger from France, that woman's name is uh, Marguerite Aga Nastelli, and that person is Haji Khan, and that person is uh, Milo Stephanopoulos. In other words, that person is Italian, that person is Arab, and that person is Greek. They wouldn't know the difference. They would not know the difference. So my point is that if you are creating an ethnic chauvinistic race only, and they, they always say, well, you, you could, it's not race only. Anybody can. No, it's race only. Come on. And you're theme is that you have grievances against the majority, but there is no majority anymore, and you're all well-established as middle-class people, and what is the qualification? Is it the language? Is it the uh, superficial appearance? Is it the name? Come on, let's have some definitions. If you want to go down the apartheid route, then give us the apartheid models that have been used in the past. And they've got, as I said with Sammy, you've got National Socialism that can help you out. You've got the pre-Confederate uh, antebellum South. You've got Jim Crow. You've got South Africa. They can all come in to help you with the one drop, the one sixteenth, you name it. And that's what's so silly about it, these graduations. And yeah. I, I don't understand it. I mean, I, what do you? How long do you keep saying that your primary persona is your ethnic? appearance i don't get it in a in a racially integrated united states and how do you how do you apply for being hispanic anymore 
And we really saw that, and I keep bringing it up, Jack, but we saw that with the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman. If the poor guy, George Zimmerman, had just said, look, you think I'm a Nazi-sounding name, Zimmerman, German, I get it, but I'm not. My mom's from Peru. She's a first immigrant. I'm a first-generation Peruvian. My dad married a Peruvian. Her name is Mesa. And you know what? I have a lot of pride in my Peruvian roots. So I'm not just faking it like third and fourth generation. My name is Jorge. It's not George. It's Jorge Mesa. Jorge Mesa. So Jorge Mesa got in a fight with Trayvon Martin. And the whole yeah. end of story would be a lot different. The intersectionality uh, uh, rules collapse at that point. Exactly. Yeah. And the New York Times would have trouble pushing white Hispanic. Yeah, and, and so my point is, that it's so ridiculous to keep going down this route. And and at this graduation, we have all these different graduations, and the country is so disunited and fragmented. What we're waiting for one brave college president who says to himself, "You know what? I'm 55. I've had a great career. I was a professor. I've been a provost. I've been a dean. I've got a comfortable 401k." Right. Screw it. I'm going to stand for principle. And they, I know they will fire me, but I'll make a statement. So he will say, on this campus at this time, we're going to have one graduation. It's going to be ecumenical. And each person can contribute in their own unique way, but we're not going to separate people by race. And the same thing about dorms. You're not going to be able to violate the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and five by selecting in advance the race of your roommate. Sorry. And two, you're not going to be in a racially segregated dorm. And that would be wonderful. He'd be famous. She'd be famous. Yeah. And we, you know, it's like Diogenes. You're looking around Athens for one honest man. You can't find them. There's no SI Iowa Cowboys. They're going to jump up on a bullhorn yank it out and say we're you're not going to shout down people with a megaphone who will disagree with you and become famous right yeah well e pluribus anum is uh hanging on by a thread there victor we have uh time for quick time <laughs> just quick for one exunis praise from many from one yeah well it's it seemed to be seemed to have worked for over 200 years uh Maybe I, I have hope though, but uh, all that, my opinion aside, again, not a lot of time left, and we're going to go back to the Supreme Court and talk about one, one quickly, one last topic, and that's going to be uh, asset forfeiture, and we'll get to that. Victor's thoughts on that right after this final important message. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, that same MAGA Supreme Court that that was vilified by Chuck Schumer that we began this podcast talking about issued another ruling striking down a Minnesota county's asset forfeiture law. And in, in a nutshell, some lady had not paid her full property taxes. The state or the county foreclosed on the property sold it, sold it for a lot more than the tax debt was, kept uh, the kept the balance. And this was an issue that was, you know, the court decided essentially, no, you can't keep the balance. This isn't, you know, 
this isn't the point of paying uh, on on debt. So good. I'm gl- I personally I'm glad that some um, re- refinement of asset forfeiture has has been brought to bear by the Supreme Court. But in general, Victor, I have found that um, left or right, conservative, liberal, and conservative, I mean by some conservative members of Congress, because this issue came up years ago in the war on drugs. Like, yes, let's, you know, the the guy who's selling drugs, he was doing it from his car. We're going to take the car. Oh, by the way, there was $100,000 in it. The money must have come from, we're going to keep it all. And municipalities and Counties keep them, and they they look forward to that money. Yeah, this is good. We need the dough. But in many cases, Victor, we know these stories that people's uh, 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 you know car, house have been taken wrong or improperly. They didn't commit any crime. They can't get their money back. It's it's a nightmare. I think so. That's just me. I'm babbling, but I, I have a problem with af- asset forfeiture. Um, I don't know. What, what do you have any thoughts? Yeah, on I have this a big problem at the show. I have a problem with two things. One is the use of eminent domain for quote unquote economic renewal, where the state or the local municipality goes into a very successful area and confiscates property or forces a sale at their price range uh, for, because they want to have a big corporation or a hotel come in. That's bad. And the thing about the assets is we're going to see a lot more of this because if you look at the obligations and the unfunded liabilities of states and cities, especially their pension plans in blue states and blue cities, they're broke. They are out and they're like paramecium or amoebas. They're self-perpetuating uh, organisms and they're going to need reta- they're going to need revenue and they don't have the revenue because they've to mix my metaphors, they've killed the golden goose. The golden goose is gone and they've taxed them so much they left. And so there's not enough people with the type of income that they demand to redistribute. So a city like Chicago or San Francisco or Los Angeles or Baltimore, or Indianapolis or Milwaukee, they're broke. And where are they going to get the money? Well, one of the things they do is they turn to assets so if people are late on a tax bill or or they haven't pay they haven't paid a fine of course that will be asymmetrical the the enforcement of that or they're involved in illegal activity and it won't be uniform jack it won't be this is the policy of the city of los angeles if you don't pay your property tax regardless of who you are this is what we will do if you are engaged in a felony if you are charged and convicted of a felony of drug transportation selling etc importation we will confiscate this they won't do that it'll be all ad hoc well who is this guy? Is he important? Maybe we'll leave him alone. Is he related to a politician? Who knows? Oh, what color is this person? What gender is this? What sexual orientation is this person? It'll all be weaponized as we've seen. And that's scary because they will start looking for people with assets and then sort of in Berea fashion, show me the target and I'll get you the crime. Show me the fat cat who's got some assets to help you know, my broke city police department that can't, can't afford patrol cars. Oh, that guy over there, he's he's got a chauffeur's 
service and they, they're selling marijuana out of the back seats of some of their cars. Let's go after him and go after him and enforce him with drug running. And we can get six of those town cars or SUVs, paint them black, put our signal and there's our police force. So that's what we're going to see more and more of. Yeah, it's bad. It seems to me it's a violation of all sorts of search and seizure and the basic idea of property ownership. Yeah. But but everybody thinks, well, Victor, you're paranoid. No, I'm not. We're $33 trillion in debt. And these states or cities in the blue states in particular, which I live in, are, have massive, massive debits and obligations and yearly deficits. And they don't have the tax base anymore because people are fleeing them. And they're poorly run and they're weaponized and they're crooked and they need revenue or they're going to massively default. And when you look at what they rely on, you look at San Francisco, Los Angeles, you look at Chicago, you look at Milwaukee, as I said, you look at some of these cities, Philadelphia, they depend on a lot of very high end corporations being headquartered there and owning office buildings. But when you look at the vacancy rate of an office building in these blue cities, it's about 35%, Jack. Right, right. And the price per the debt, the indebtedness per square foot of these office buildings, that entails the amount of money they borrowed to build the building versus what they paid off with rent. It's climbing. It's like from $150, it's up to $250 a square foot with these massive hundreds of thousands of square feet buildings. And there's no way in the world they're going to be able to pay those debts and they're going to default. Right. And what is the city, what are these cities going to do? They're going to be looking for some assets to survive. And somebody's going to say, well, Victor, they can cut their they can cut their diversity, equity, and inclusion program, their community health center, their no, they won't cut those. Those will be well, the last thing they cut. In Connecticut, there was a, and I'm sure eventually it'll, it'll come to pass. Some this some maybe ten years ago, someone introduced the novel idea of the hoarder's tax, which was to just tax your savings. Of course, savings of money you've already has already made it through the few dollars that have made it through the taxing system in your bank account or wherever. But oh, you're hoarding it, and we have a right to take part of what you are hoarding. That's the mentality. You know, it's like Max Bialy stock and the producers. I want that money. You know, that's what it comes down to. I mean, the Whatever whole way system, I can do to get it. Our I'm whole system it. is built on a simple premise. Our whole modern American system in the last 20 years is we always punish the middle class non-offender model citizen for the sins of the offender that we won't punish. So you have shoplifters that go in and just walk out with hands full of stuff and you can't punish them, then we will ensure that the city that these stores lock up everything so the middle class law-abiding citizen comes in there for some claritin and a big shaver and he's got to wait an hour. Or they're going to whole earth's gonna say, you know what? We're going to leave because there's too much shoplifting and the city won't enforce it. And then we punish all the people who counted every day of going in there and getting an apple and some grapes. He is the one that is punished. Same thing with guns. You've got people in Chicago killing 10, 20 people on weekends with handguns. We're going to make sure there's hard for the guy out there in rural Dakota that needs to buy a handgun to shoot rattlesnakes. We're going to make, make it. 
we always punish the law-abiding citizen and make his life more inconvenient because we're afraid to deal with the real problem. Same thing mm. with homelessness and everything. Homeless, yeah, yeah. And we're going, we're going to say, you know what? The homelessness problem, that's a sacrosanct. They are victims. They do not attack people. They do not make life on healthy. They do not smell. They do not they do use not drugs. Right? They but don't you, wrap in the street. You, the yeah. citizen? If you want to walk down Market Street or buy Union Spares, it's your job to step over the human feces, right. over the syringe, turn your head when somebody's defecating, urinating, injecting, fornicating. Don't let your children see that. That's your problem. Right. So we will make life hell for the law-abiding citizens so that we can allow the lawbreaker to be exempt because we don't have the moral authority or the imagination or the courage to deal with this existential problem. It's yeah. if, you had, if, if you had the courage, Rick, you'd have to say it's some, with all these issues, you'd have to say that's abnormal, which means you'd have to say this is normal and they don't have the... the or you'd have to say, to I'm say, sorry, homelessness is not, is not, that's a euphemism. If you took every one right. of those people that was homeless, quote unquote, and you took a huge parking lot, say 10 acres outside of San Francisco, and there are pl such places, and you built $100,000 little cubicles, and they've done that, that are about 300 square feet, and they have running water and heat, and they're clean, and you put 150 of them in a nice little village and marked them off, and they had a communal medical center, and you took all those people and you put them there, it still wouldn't matter. Right. They would leave. Because it's yeah. mental illness, it's mostly drug use, it's crime, and you don't want to talk about that. So you put them all together under the noble rubric, well, they're just homeless. No, it's not yeah. the problem they don't have a home. That's one of the problems. The problem is they're using illegal drugs with impunity. The problem is they're stealing with impunity. The problem is they're mentally ill, and they're either not giving treatment or medicine. And yeah. It gets me angry because, you know, when we had this Neely thing in the subway, Jordan Neely, right, and we were told that the system failed him. They, I, I read that. It's, no, he, he failed us. The system didn't fail. He was arrested forty-two times. There were many occasions where he was offered count every one. He was hardly ever incarcerated for very long. Yet he broke a person's jaw. He hit a woman in an eye socket and smashed it. He was lewd. He had three violent felonies. Every time he was offered counseling, he was offered a halfway house. He, he didn't. He either left, or he didn't take advantage of it. Well, he was he was ill. Well, I'm sorry, but society reached out for him and gave him an exemption 42 times, or he wouldn't have been where he was threatening people. Right. So we've got to get over this idea that every homeless person is a victim. They're not. They're victimizers in many cases. They right. hit people. They they damage people's aspirations. They destroy property, and until you have the courage to deal with that problem, and you uh, you know what I, I guess what's coming. There's uh, the way I look at it as the metaphor. There's a big steam engine called truth coming. I don't mean authoritarianism or right wing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, vengeance. I'm just talking about truth. It's a locomotive right. called truth, and you're looking down the track, and it's coming at about seventy miles an hour right at us. And one of the truths is 
this homelessness. The other is that, and Heather McDonald's new book, I was looking at, at on the merit, end of the meritocracy. We're going to have her on a podcast, I think, next week. Is that terrific? For all the problems with race, it's it, it it's there's something we don't talk about, and that is a subset of the population about five percent of the population, which is the numbers of African-American males between the ages of 12 and 40, are committing about 55 percent of the murders and about 50 percent of violent assaults, just that small group. And we're not doing it. We, it's not that we're not addressing that. We're, we don't even want to talk about it. To talk right. about it, what I just said is a fireable offense. But that truth is coming, too. People are going to start talking about it especially as they find that they can't walk places in the inner city. They right. can't go anywhere. Yeah. Domestic tranquility matters. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that is a truth. The other truth is we're going to see it this summer because here in California and many of these blue states, they have shut down nuclear plants. They have shut down natural gas plants and they have spent billions on daytime solar mega farms that give you 110% of the energy you need during daylight hours and 30% what you need at night, nothing. And we're gonna, when you start seeing these blackouts and brownouts in a massive scale, then I think people are gonna be considered, are, being, are going to be confronted with truth, truth coming down right at you. Here's truth. Right. And yeah, same thing about well. the airline industry. The airline industry is in shambles. And everybody, it's overcrowded. It's poorly run. We're hiring people to be pilots and air traffic controllers, not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we've had six, seven near misses. And we're right. looking at truth coming down that this present system, given all the technology and all the safety mechanisms that have been extraordinary the last 10 years, we're going to start seeing some catastrophic accidents unless we change very quickly. I have a feeling, Victor, we, if we go on another hour, there'd be about 20 truth. more truths. <laughs> We're all going to be flattened by it. It's scary. Yeah. I, I'm very afraid of truth because yeah. truth is something. Remember what the Greek word for truth is? It's aletheia, and it comes from a, a Greek word, lamphano, to forget. And alpha, as you know, amoral, alpha is called alpha privative. It cancels out what follows. Ah, lathea, not forgettable. Lanthano mm -hmm. means to forget or miss. So what is truth? Something you can't put out of your mind. It just exists. It's not forgettable. And it just exists regardless of what we say it is. And it's just an abs platonic absolute. And these truths... Are, are pretty hard. They're called human nature. And uh, if you don't punish somebody who shoots or defecates on a city street, then you get more of it. Well, they say the truth will set you free, but I guess not <laughs> Not right after it hits you. Yeah, it'll take, it'll that's, take that's a generation. In, that's truth, in right? John. That's in the Gospel yeah. of John. And the word that they right. use there is aletheia. Yeah. Well, Victor, that's uh, time to tell the truth here. It's all the time we have. We'll thank our listeners no matter what. A platform they listen on. If you're a new visitor, a new listener, particularly, thanks for coming. I hope you stick around, and and of course, thanks to those folks who come now four times a week and sometimes five times a week to listen to Victor. Looking forward. If you're actually going to do a one-on-one -on -one with Heather McDonald, that that will be uh, 
Uh, terrific. Uh, for myself, quickly, I just want to encourage our listeners to visit civilthoughts.com and sign up for the free weekly email newsletter I write for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, where we are determined to strengthen civil society. Civil Thoughts, uh, it's it's free. Uh, we're not putting your name on a sell. We're not selling your name. Uh, and there's no nothing transactional about it. And it gives 12 to 14 recommended readings, like the piece we just discussed on Russell Walter Mead. That's the kind of thing I would put in there. Hey, Russell Walter Mead has this great piece in Tablet Mag. Here's the link. Here's an excerpt. So uh, lots of people here who have listened to this podcast have signed up and they enjoy it. Civilthoughts.com. And uh, Victor, to our listeners who rate the show, which they can do on iTunes or, or Apple, uh, zero to five stars. Many do. We have an average of over 4.9. A few people that don't give us five stars. It's a free country. You don't have to, but most people love it. And we thank them for uh, taking the time to rate the uh, the program and also those who leave comments, which you can do at iTunes and Apple. Here's one. It's from NSSS. I don't know what the name is. And it's titled, The Most Important Voice for All Americans Who Love Our Great Country. That's the title. And here's what News writes. Hello, Jack. Professor Hansen, words cannot describe how important your podcast is to Americans of all ages. You may not think you're having a huge impact or reaching the youth, but you are. As prolific writer, essayist, and thought leader, your work has led the way in important circles, think tanks, and the donor classes, but now your words this meaning the podcast, is doing the same for youth, the common man, uninformed or politically lost, who absorb content differently while in motion, multitasking, etc., for better or worse. Please don't ever think you have uh, you are not having an impact. You are. For my family, friends, neighbors, thank you for your tireless work. God bless to you and yours. NSSS. Thank you for that kind compliment. Victor, thanks uh, for all the wisdom uh, you shared today, as you do on every episode. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Much appreciated. See you next time. 